today I want to do a standalone sermon, and uh, really it flows from some thinking I've been, I've had, I've been going through on an issue that I think is pretty significant in our culture and in our church today. Uh, I was born in 1973. How many of you are older than me? You'll admit it. Okay. How many of you are younger? All right. Now, I did this little thing online two weeks ago, and I was shocked to discover that 72% of the people that are alive on the planet today are younger than me. If you compare the Earth's population now compared to 1973, it's gone like this. So 72% of the world is less than 46 years old. It's, that's unbelievable. And we have seen... So I, was, I remember the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, and so forth. Some of you remember the 60s and 50s, maybe even the 40s or 30s. Some of you are like, I hardly remember yesterday. <laughs> but anybody, I would say, at least 20 and up would probably agree with me when I say there has been radical shift radical change that has taken place in our culture in my lifetime. It's absolutely unbelievable. And I want to address today how we as God's people can speak truth into a, an exceedingly broken and dark world. We could say the world's gone left if you're political, but I would just say the world has gone down. And we live in a place, a, a point in time, when there is abysmal immorality, and confusion and lies that have become not peripheral, but they are actually mainstream in our culture. Like, who would have thought it? So I want to talk about some of that with you today from God's Word as we study the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And as we prep ourselves to do that, let me just lead us in a word of prayer. So Father God, we cry out to you today to show your power to us through your Word we want you to speak truth into our lives. And we want that truth to transform us. We want it to dispel ignorance, to correct confusion. Father God, we want to be a people that understand you and understand your ways. And even if In our current state, we're not able to perfectly obey your law. We want to at least know the direction we're supposed to head in. Father, we pray that as a church that's committed to making disciples, that we would understand how to speak truth into a world that is marked by lies and deceit and confusion. We're thankful for the eternal word of God. We hold it high in the air right now, symbolizing our desire to submit ourselves to its authority because we believe that when the creator speaks, the creature should listen. So speak to us, Father, through your holy word. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. Here's where I want to start. Some of you are going to have a longer list than I will. If you're older than me, some of you are going to have a shorter list. But let's do a little contrast. Let's talk about the then and the now. 
the past and the present. Let's list out some things that used to be true and used to be common that most people believed in. And then let's compare that to the messages that we're hearing in 2019. So I remember a time in my youth when people would blaspheme. They would use God's name in an inappropriate way. But they knew it was inappropriate even though they did it. Now, people think there's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's no big deal. I remember a time in my younger years when sexual immorality was acknowledged even by unbelievers to be wrong. People still engaged in fornication and adultery and so forth and so on. But no one would say this is right. They would sort of say it with a little bit of shame. They would be a little reluctant to tell you what they were doing because they, they still acknowledged that it was wrong. Now, in the present day, we're actually encouraged from the highest offices of our land downward to experiment sexually. And we're told that virtually any and every expression of human sexuality is acceptable and should be endorsed. That's a radical shift, folks, from the 70s, the 80s, and even before. When I was young, almost everybody believed in God or the gods. But now the, the dominant message is, I believe in me. If you pay attention to what people put on their t-shirts, Susie and I saw this this week in a place where we were eating, and, and it may just kind of slip by us, but if you pay attention, it's not uncommon to see people wearing t-shirts that say, you know, believe in yourself, find your inner self, look within. It's really Eastern philosophy that's crept into our country in a secularized form. But the idea is that the power, the potential, guess where that lies? Knowing you. It's a radical shift. In the old days, why did you go to work? You went to work because you had to. Now we have a shift. I go to work when I feel like it. In the old days, the idea was, I, I contribute to the welfare of society. I may not want to, but I contribute to the welfare of society. Now the dominant idea is, society owes me. They owe me an education. They owe me a paycheck, whether I'm working or not. They owe me. You owe me. When I was young, life was considered sacred. Now the idea is really only my life counts. As long as I'm happy and I can do what I want, that's what matters the most. And then there was, there was truth. People would debate what was right and wrong or what they believed in, but there was a basic sense by virtue of having a debate that there was, there was truth to be found. We're in the pursuit of knowledge. We want to figure it out. But now the notion is truth is in the eye of the beholder. And so we, we often hear cliche statements like what's right for you may not be right for me. 
or what's true for you may not be true for me. This is not, this is no longer a footnote. This is no longer a minority belief. This is majority. It used to be that authority was considered necessary, even though authority is not always perfect. We understood that authority is necessary. Parental authority, governmental authority, pastoral authority, judicial authority. But the notion nowadays is, I'm my own authority. I'm the center of my world, and I do what I want for as long as I want. You see what I'm talking about? When we compare the then to now, in in a relatively short period of time, we're talking about a few decades, we have seen an almost unprecedented shift in worldview and in mindset from the 70s and 80s up till now. And this should burden us. And while we as churches usually preach from the second column, we preach morals, we preach right and wrong, we preach truth, it seems to me that we we often struggle with the question of, yeah, but how necessary, how right, how appropriate is is it for me to take what I believe to be true outside of my church into the public realm? Like, should I be talking about right and wrong with unbelievers? Should I bother standing up for morality in the political realm? Should I just sort of focus in on the essence of the gospel, the salvation message? Is it it even right to encourage our country, my unbelieving family members, my classmates, my teachers? Is it even right to encourage them to follow a, a basic notion of biblical morality? Should I, should I bother encouraging morals in the secular world? Now, there's many reasons, I think, why Christians wrestle with that. And I, I bet you many of you, if not all of you, have wrestled with that very thing. If you know the Lord and you believe certain things to be true, but you go out there and you're like, man, they, they believe something very different, but should I say anything? Should I, should I speak truth into the life of an unbeliever? Is it, is it even biblical to encourage lost people to follow basic morals? There's many reasons for that. I'm, I'm going to just kind of list off a few. The first one is we often assume that moral teaching is only for believers, Because we're all about following in the footsteps of Jesus, why would we ask someone that doesn't know Jesus to do something that Jesus values? So we wrestle with that question. And it often hinders the proclamation of morality outside of the church. Or we're Bible-believing Christians, and we believe that salvation is by the grace of God as we exercise faith in what Jesus has done. And we don't want to fall into the trap of moralizing the world or preaching a good works oriented gospel. So it's like, I don't want to tell people to live a certain way or be faithful in their marriage or stop lying or stop cheating because that might make them think that I think that being a Christian boils down to what you do. And that can be a hindrance in sharing morals in the public realm. Or... We just have to acknowledge we live in a pluralistic world and there's many different 
conceptions and perceptions about what's right and wrong. And that's kind of what it means to be Canadian, I guess. And so we're just one body of truth in a sea of choices and options. And we want our freedoms to practice our faith. So shouldn't we sort of let other people have freedom to practice their faith? And doesn't that mean then that preaching our brand of truth is kind of maybe a little inappropriate? That can be another hindrance to teaching morals in the public realm. Or we might have this growing fear that, you know, it's illegal to say certain things or the law may be threatening us. I mean, think about it. If the law says people can do what they want sexually and we speak out against that, I mean, who, which one of us wants to go to jail for that? Which one of us wants to be fined for that? Which one of us wants to have our churches closed down for that? Now, sidebar, I think that's a load because statistically, if all biblical Christians in our country, and there are several million of them, actually stood up and said, no, this is wrong, good luck building enough penitentiaries to house us all. But the problem is, if only a fraction of a percent ever says anything, that's considered weird, that's considered odd, that's considered abnormal, and it's increasingly likely that our officials will target those that appear to be a microscopic minority. But I still think there's a lot of Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians in this world that believe in basic biblical morality and should probably do a little better job speaking out against it. The final reason why we sometimes just don't say anything is because maybe we just don't care. It's just not in our wheelhouse. It's not on our radar. Frankly, we have better things to do. These are all things that hinder us from encouraging moral living in a secular world. So I just want you to be thinking about this as we enter into the book of Romans. Just this basic question. Out of all those choices, and maybe there are others, what is most likely to hinder you from teaching morals to unbelievers? Now, with that in mind, I want to present you with my thesis statement today. And then I want to take you to God's word to prove that it's biblical and accurate. And this is my thesis statement, which may be opposite to what you've grown up being taught, but I think it's anchored in the word of God. And the thesis statement is that God's moral law is actually for all people. And we have a duty to teach it, period. God's moral law is for believers and unbelievers alike. And we have a responsibility to teach it. I want to present to you three reasons why that's true. One from Romans 1, one from Romans 2, and one from Romans chapter 3. Let's get into Romans chapter 1 to get us going. And by the way, if you're unfamiliar with Romans, the first three chapters of Romans are essentially kind of bleak. They introduce us to human sinfulness, but also human responsibility. And then chapter 4 and following is really about the results of the good news of Jesus Christ when it takes hold of a person's life and transforms them. But we're just going to spend this morning in those bleaker chapters of the Bible because they really do help us to understand how to address immorality in the public realm. So here's three reasons. The first reason is this, found in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. 
It's right to teach morals because God judges people because they actually know right from wrong. This may surprise you, but this text is going to teach us that unbelievers actually already present tense in the here and now very much know right from wrong. Here's what it says in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God, the judgment of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, that's a heavy word, suppress, drown, push down what? The truth. Okay, that raises my curiosity. What kind of truth have unrighteous men pushed down? What kind of sin is present in the lives of unbelievers? Before we go any further, let me just say this. I believe that the Bible teaches that sin is both inherited and chosen. When Adam and Eve sinned, something intrinsically, ontologically happened to humanity. From there forward, every child that was ever born, bar Jesus, because he was born of a virgin, was born in sin, was actually conceived in sin. There's something innately wrong with us from conception onward, and we've inherited that from Adam and Eve. A sin nature, a bent, if you will, a propensity towards sin. Now, Sometimes I meet people that are like, I don't think that's true. Okay, well, I don't really care if you don't think it's true or not, because look around you. Would you not agree that 100% of people sin? Oh, yeah, I would. So then it's a moot point. Same thing. You arrive at the same conclusion. Every single human being that has ever lived has sinned, except for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe it's because we're born in sin. But here's the thing. We also choose to sin. We choose to think those thoughts, say those words, go those places, pick up those things, take those things that we shouldn't. We all alike are sinners. That's a biblical fact. Now here we have somewhat of a definition of sin. And sin's definition, of, sin's definition is essentially that we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. We suppress it with our words, with our thoughts, and with our deeds. What kind of truth though? Back to the question. What kind of truth are we talking about? Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is, and I want to hear you say it, is what? Is plain to them. What does that word mean? It means it's obvious. It's plain. It's obvious. What's obvious? God. What, is to be, what can be known about God is plain to them. Who's the them? Everybody, believers and unbelievers alike. Why? Because God has shown it to them. God is a God of revelation. And he's revealed himself to us through a Bible, but not just a Bible. He's revealed himself to us through creation itself. The heavens declare the glory of God. You look at the design of a baby, the design of... Nature, the detail in nature, the design. And you're like, nah, no, it's, it's not. It didn't come about by chance. No. I mean, that's contrary to what you know to be true. 
Get out into the wild. Get out into nature. Check out the world around you. God has imprinted his nature on the world itself. Now, some of us spend too much time, you know, in urban centers. We don't see God's design as much as we might if we're kind of out in the wild, right? By the way, you guys having any trouble seeing me right now? Lighting's okay? You can see me? Okay, because some people were complaining, you know, when I came in this morning that with the urban camo on, they couldn't really, like, <laughs> see me. Um, sorry about that. But if, if I was out in a nice green forest, you'd be able to see me because it's mostly green out there. You get out into the wild, you get to see the, the beauty of God on display. You get to, you have an innate sense that there is design. There is something beyond that transcends this physical world. You know it. You can deny it. You can run your little equations, put your little timelines together, trying to stretch out the age of the earth, explain with your lame little scientific evidences, with your massive brain, why we just all evolve from chance. You can do whatever you want. And humanity's become super complex and complicated and well-intentioned in their desire to erase from human consciousness a knowledge of God, but they will fail because every single human being knows because it's been made plain to them by the creator himself that there is a God. Now, verse 20 we're not there yet, makes it clear that the finer points of Christian theology are not in view here. So we're not saying that creation communicates, oh, churches should be led by elders, or baptism should be by immersion, or whatever. We're not talking about the finer points of Christian theology, but the knowledge that there is a God has been made clear to humanity through the world itself. So here's how it works. The atheist says... There is no God. The Bible says there are no atheists. God has plainly revealed himself to humanity, and anyone that says, I'm an atheist, is a liar, and they're a liar either consciously or subconsciously because they have been deceived by lies. Look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes. You think, well, if it's invisible, you can't see it. Not true of God. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been, what's the next couple of words? Clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Before Adam and Eve sinned, it was clear, and it's still clear now. God's invisible attributes. Can you taste them, touch them, smell them, see them, hear them? No. But you have another sense because you're made in the image and likeness of God. And that which is true is not limited to that which you can taste, touch, smell, see, or hear. You have a sixth sense about you because you're made in the image and likeness of God. And that sixth sense enables you to clearly not ambiguously, but clearly perceive God where? In the things that have been made. So we have creation, 
And creation reveals something to us about creator. You look at a piece of glass, you see a fingerprint. That fingerprint tells you something about the fingerprint-er. God's fingerprint is on creation itself. And now we have this statement of responsibility, so they are without excuse. It's so clear, it's so plain, it's so obvious that not a single person on earth can say, "Ah, but, but I never had a Bible. Oh, well, there were a lot of believers before the Bible was ever written. Think of Melchizedek, think of Abraham, think of Isaac, think of Jacob. Did they have a Bible? No. They didn't have one single book of the Bible. And they still believed in God. And they still worshiped God. And they still surrendered their lives to God because the things that have been made introduce us to the maker of all things. So we have the words plain and clearly perceived. That means that since time began, we're responsible for the revelation that God has given to us. Verse 21 states, for although they knew God, they did not honor him. The problem is not a lack of knowledge, it's a lack of worship. The problem is not a lack of awareness, it's a lack of honoring the one that you are innately aware of. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is a weighty verse, futile. Think of, just think of that word for a minute. What does it mean? It's like you're, you're grasping for something, but you, you, you just can't get your hand on it. You're, you're seeking to live a God. I don't need God. I can live my life, but there's a, an, an innate futility there. You, you're just not really going anywhere. You're not making any progress. You toss God out. What do you have left? Futility, ignorance, confusion. Even those of us that know the Lord can probably attest to times in our lives when we abandoned him. We stopped obeying him. And how did that go for us? How did that go? Was life clearer and more joyful and more fulfilling? No, there's, you have this sense of futility and anger starts to fit in and you start to accuse more and you start to become more self-centered and you start to become more lustful and you're more likely to tell a lie and you're more likely to ruin a relationship. Because when God is tossed, the only thing that's left is confusion because God is the author and the source of truth. And you get rid of the author and source of truth and you're just kind of me, myself, and I trying to figure it out and it ain't fun. There's futility that sets in. But futility, when it invades our thinking, leads to foolishness. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. (laughs) This, okay. This is an example of where a spirit-filled believer can look at the Bible and they just know it's true. Because this statement speaks to our very existence. This statement reveals to us, it's like, Eureka, this is the world within which I live. P. 
people running around with all these degrees claiming to be wise and thoughtful, legislating this with all these rationale and reasons and court documents and judicial declarations and trying to explain the origins of the world with PhDs, multiple PhDs behind their name and writing books and articles and journals and on and on, claiming to be wise. But you look at it and you're like, you're an idiot. It's all foolishness. It's all ridiculous. It's all lies. It's all smoke and mirrors. But you've created this system where lie is stacked upon lie and lie is stacked upon lie. And you've convinced the masses that there is no God and life revolves around you and you wonder why the world is broken. You can pray for peace on earth all you want. When you toss God, there never will be peace on earth. There will just be more war, more broken families, more death, more rape, more molestations, more addictions, more depression. The Bible testifies to our existential existence. It's so true. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And why? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's the thing, brother and sister. We are all spiritual beings. Every human being is different than an animal. We are spiritual beings. And spiritual beings must have a God to worship. They must. And so if you toss the creator God, you're just going to find your own God. Likely the God will be you. Likely. It'll be your intellect, your brain, your ability to explain the origins of the universe using your sophisticated knowledge and education. It'll be a false religion a false God, it'll be your stuff, your material possessions. Every one of us worships something or someone because we are spiritual beings. And so when God is tossed out, one of the manifestations of our foolish, confused thinking is that we just do a grand exchange. We just exchange the glory of the immortal God for some image, for something else. Everybody worships something, including the atheist Everybody worships something. Why else is the atheist so committed, so passionate? These are value words to proving that they are right. If they're truly an atheist, who cares that you're an atheist? Why are you telling me that you're an atheist? Why are you trying to promote your atheism? Who cares? There's no meaning. There's no life. There's no purpose. Because your God is you. It's your brain It's your notion that if you can't prove God using your eyes or your mouth or your nose or your hands or your ears, and he must not be true. That sounds a lot like I'm the center of the universe. I'm the one that determines right and wrong. You're your own God. Again, if it's not the creator that has created then self, idol stuff, false gods, etc., Fill that gap. In other words, everyone is religious. Make no mistake about it. Everyone is religious. But there are consequences to worshiping the wrong God. In 24, it says, therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart to impurity. When you give God up, 
God gives you up. God gives you over. It's like when you walk from God's, God's like, okay, well, try living in your confusion and your death. I'm actually going to push you a little further into it. See how that works for you. God gave them up to the lust of their heart and impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. By the way, this is one of the primary manifestations of abandoning God. You start to use your physical body in a dishonoring way, in a corrupt way. The dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. There you have it. Everybody's a worshiper. You're just either worshiping creator or you're worshiping creature. Begs the question, what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping creator or are you worshiping yourself? Am I worshiping creator or am I fixated on myself? Am I dishonoring God by using my body in a sinful way? They serve the creature rather than the creator who is forever, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, do I even need to like illustrate this? <laughs> no, because you live in the same world that I do. And we can look around us and we could come up with illustration after illustration of how humanity have become experts at dishonoring their own bodies. At Pursuing pleasure at all costs, at destructive behavior and substance abuse, and on and on and on and on. Because when God is set aside, the temptation to fixate on self-satisfaction becomes overwhelming in our hearts and in our lives. These are the consequences of pushing God away. And here's how it works. When God is pushed away, we're left alone. And when we're alone, who do we have to think about? Well, we have self to think about. Just think about ourselves a lot. We fixate on self. We, we either worship self or we seek to please self at all costs. And this leads to sins of the flesh. Think of all the sins of the flesh. All the things we say and do to satisfy this body of ours. Stuffing the food in when we know we should have quit a long time ago. Drinking. Eating, smoking, having sex with whoever we want, whatever it might be. Seeking to satisfy the desires of the flesh. When we reject truth... All, all that we're left with is a lie. And the lie never, ever, ever ultimately satisfies. And you know what? We all know that. Because we've been there, done that. It never satisfies. Like, why do I keep going back to that? It never satisfied me a hundred times ago. But we keep going back to it. And so point number one is every human being knows that there is a God. We simply ignore it or we accept it. But there's more. Not only do we know this objectively, but the, our, 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 our comprehension of God is also internal. God's shown it in creation, 
And God has written a certain something on our hearts. The Bible teaches us that God's moral law is actually written in the hearts of all people. This is Romans chapter 2. You can get over there. Verses 14 to 16. Now bear in mind that God has codified his law, if you will, in the Bible. He's codified his law in the Bible. And we say it's our final authority. But God has also revealed himself outside of the Bible. Again, Abraham never had a Bible, but God revealed himself to Abraham. Isaac never had a Bible, but God revealed himself to Isaac. God has written himself into creation. He has spoken to people audibly through the prophets and apostles through incarnations and so forth. So God has codified his law in the Bible, but it's not just there. The basic morality of God is also obvious in creation. In verse 14 of chapter 2, it says, for when Gentiles, that's like a catch-all word for people that are godless, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have this. They don't have the codified law. By nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, meaning the codified law of God in the Bible. How does that work? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Wow. It's written on their hearts. It's not just in creation. It's written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. So this tells us that unbelievers all have a conscience, a consciousness of right and wrong. And how does that work? Their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts. So they know what's right and wrong, but they're not living it. So back to the word futility, God's made it plain. God's allowed it to be clearly perceived, but they're futile because they've abandoned God's law. Follow it. They've abandoned God's law. So that puts them into a place where knowing what's right and wrong, but not living it, leads to like an internal, mental, emotional, spiritual conflict. And those conflicts either accuse them, meaning make them aware of their sinfulness again, or even excuse them. They just come up with more lies. You just stack lies on lies to try to overcome the consciousness of sin that you have as a created being. But then the Bible says, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, the time will come when God will judge you. And God will judge you because you know right from wrong. You may be conflicted in whether you want to obey or disobey. You may have stacked lie upon lie upon lie, and your thinking is very futile and you're confused. And Or maybe you've become a master at keeping it all secret. You, you tell people one thing, but in your heart of hearts, you know the difference between right and wrong. When God comes, he's going to unveil and reveal all of that. Nothing is going to be hidden from God. And so contrary to the notion that, well, unbelievers, they just don't know. They don't know better. They're not aware. They're just like, no, they know. The Bible says they know. Now, we would agree as Christians that conviction of sin is a supernatural thing. 
When God convicts us of sin, he's like a, he arrests us with it. But consciousness of sin is a very natural thing. Consciousness of sin is built into the DNA of everyone made in the image and likeness of God, which includes believer and unbeliever alike. So we experience conviction. The unbeliever may not, unless it's at the moment of their salvation. But make no mistake about it, they have a consciousness of sin. They know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. You don't have to be a Christian to know that killing a child in their mother's womb is innately wrong. You don't need DNA to prove that that's a child. You know it's a child. You don't have to be told, you don't have to go to a Catholic school or a Christian private school and be taught the Bible to know that stealing is wrong. You know it's wrong because you're made in the image and likeness of God. You know it's wrong. And yes, there are some that might be deceived to a greater degree. And yes, we understand that we don't have the kind of expectations of a believer that we do of, of an unbeliever that we do of a believer. We, we don't expect that. I've read my Bible quite a bit, actually. And we don't put unbelievers under excommunication from our churches when they're living in sin. We don't do that because we don't really expect them to live like Jesus. And we don't expect them to have the kind of insight and knowledge that a believer filled with the Spirit of God who has the gift of illumination. We don't expect a believer and unbeliever to live the same. But, but having said all of that, let's not buy into the all-too-popular line that unbelievers are clueless to right and wrong, There's no point in ever telling them anything's right and wrong. They know it's right and what's wrong. The Bible says it. It's revealed in creation and it's written in their hearts. Your conscience tells you what's right or wrong because you are made in the image and likeness of the king of kings. You can't avoid it. So conflicting thoughts mentioned in the text basically means that life just gets more and more and more and more confusing the farther and farther and farther you walk from truth. And this is really an explanation for why we see so many nutty, crazy, and insane things taking place even in our own country. Some of the things that are being promoted in our country, I can guarantee you would never for a microsecond have been tolerated even in the 1980s. Some of the things that people are encouraged to do and allowed to do, I'm just telling you straight up, I want to be clear with you, I don't want there to be any ambiguity, are insane. They're nuts. The things that people are saying, that, that's right, that's right. No, that's not right. That's nuts. That's insane. That's crazy. That's idiotic. Oh, it's normal. We should protect that. It's, let's march for it. Non- it's nuts. But here's what happens. The farther you drift from truth, the more confusion sets in. And the way it works is like it's, it's almost like the more obvious the sin is, the more energy we put in to trying to excuse it. Have you noticed that? So, 
let's just kind of talk about that a little bit. There are different degrees of sin. How do we know that? Because the Bible legislates different consequences for different sin. When we were kids, we were falsely told that all sin is the same in the eyes of God. Really? You ever read Leviticus? There's different consequences to sin. Have you ever read the damnation list of the New Testament? Certain sins put you outside of the kingdom of God. Now, all sin is enough to exclude someone from God's eternal kingdom and presence. But don't tell me that walking into a variety store and stealing a Swedish berry is on par with molesting a child. Don't be ridiculous. Of course one's worse than the other. Let's say you cheat on your taxes. You don't submit all your income tax. Isn't it interesting that in our country you're going to get jail time for this? But you're not going to get jail time for killing your unborn child? Now, why is that true? Because people are nuts when they walk away from God. When you abandon truth, all you have left is conflict and lies. One of my pet peeves years ago when Christian music started, modern forms of Christian music started coming out, people say, oh, it's alternative Christian music. I'm like, no, nothing in Christianity is the alternative to anything. It's the truth. Everything else is the alternative garbage to the truth. We're not the alternative. The Christian message is the truth. Everything else is the alternative. When you walk away from God, you're left with absolute confusion. And so, sins of the flesh. Let's just talk about some sins of the flesh that are encouraged and championed in the mainstream. How about drunkenness? Drunkenness is portrayed from one cover of the Bible to the last cover of the Bible as a sin. Absolutely no question about it. Drunkenness is a sin. Period. It's not even a debate about that. It's a sin. But in society, it's always a blast. It's always fun. It's always awesome. Life of the party, man. Let's hang out and get drunk because we're not creative enough to have fun apart from that. It's a party, right? Sins of the flesh, sexual immorality, super awesome. You can, basically, you cannot watch almost any television show or series nowadays where sexual immorality is not promoted. Like every, everybody, like 100% of people are living together before they're married. Like that's normal. Nobody even blinks an eye to that. People are having sex outside of marriage. People are committing all sorts of heinous acts. And that's like normal. That's normal. And they want you to say that's normal. No, it's not normal. It's nuts. It was nuts in 1960. It was nuts in 60 AD. And it was nuts in 2000 BC. And it's still nuts today. Sins of the flesh. How about lying? You can have people in high offices that are liars. Ah, oh, that's just politics. No, it's a moral sin. Oh, well, re-elect the person even though they're a liar. Yeah, but they're a liar. Oh, well, they had to lie to get their party back in power. So think about that. Greater sins. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, lying, ah, whatever. Cheating your taxes? They'll throw you in jail for 60 days. No, I'm not suggesting you should cheat on your taxes. But it's not exactly on the same level as blatant immorality. 
the greater and more obvious the sin, the more energy humanity puts into trying to excuse it and encourage it. Isn't that amazing? God's word says that. This is why people are so confused. This is why sin is so often pridefully celebrated. And yet one day God's going to pull down all the excuses and he's going to strip us naked. And we will stand before him with no place to run, no place to hide, no excuse will be good enough. He'll be like, yeah, but shut up. Yeah, but uh, my mom made me do it. No, you're responsible. And people will be held to account for the lives that they did, for the lives that they lived and the lies that they believed. Here we have lies stacked upon lies, greater confusion every day. We have more books, more knowledge, more information than any other generation before. People are killing themselves. They're clinically depressed. Marriages are still breaking up. Children are still being abandoned. It's like virtually nobody can keep it together anymore. Like who are the normal people? Where are they? Because people have pushed aside God. And here's a third reason. Not only can we preach truth because it's already obvious. It's written in the hearts of people. They can't excuse it. It's obvious in creation. But here's the big one. Here's the big one. The gospel itself, which we are called to preach, is not good. Unless and until you understand your sin. It's not good. Here's a starting point. Here's what it says about me apart from Jesus. None is righteous, no, not one. This is Romans 3.11. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Really? Yeah, nobody seeks for God. Oh, but I have a friend who's seeking God. No, no, no. They're spiritual because every human being is spiritual. They're not actually seeking for God. They know God. They know he's, he's real. Creation is born witness. They know right from wrong. But they're confused. They're living in lies. Liar land is where they live their entire lives. No one is righteous. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It's like, really? I actually know lots of unbelievers that do good. They're charitable. I even know some famous unbelievers like Gandhi that did great good. Well, Gandhi's in hell. Because nobody does meritorious good in the eyes of God. You can do all the good. You can outlive Gandhi. You can outlive Mother Teresa. You can outlive me. You can be the biggest do-gooder that's ever lived. If you're not trusting in Jesus and you don't recognize that God gives you no credit for your good apart from Jesus. You're not a Christian. You have no hope. When we were kids in school, sometimes the teacher would get out one of those big old pieces of Bristol board and draw the lines, and there'd be little Aaron and little Brian or whoever else's name was on the list. And if you did certain things, you'd get a little gold star. Remember that? The gold star. Oh, you tied your shoes. Gold star. You know, you hung your coat up. Gold star. You came back from recess when the whistle was blown. Gold star. Good little Aaron, here's your reward. God doesn't give any gold stars to unbelievers. None. Zero. You could rescue the world. You could stop genocides. You could feed countless orphans. 
How does that work? Why does God not give you some cred for that? Here's why. Because when God looks down upon you and he sees all the do-gooder activity that you're involved in, he looks past it. And he can see deep down, even in your confusion in your lies, you may not even be fully aware of it, but he looks deep down and he can see the reason why you're doing those things. And there are many reasons. Because you want to earn his favor. Because you want to look good in the eyes of other people. Because you're trying to work off your past regrets and your past shame. He sees that. He knows that every good deed in the life of an unbeliever is ultimately motivated by sin. So you don't even get credit for that. The prophet Isaiah says, all our good deeds. Let me just tell you what it says in Hebrew. Pardon me, but this is actually what the Bible says. We like to sanitize it in English. In Hebrew, the Bible says, all our good deeds are like filthy menstrual cloths. That's our good deeds. Really? Our good deeds are like filthy menstrual cloths in the eyes of God. And Romans backs it up. No one, how many people? No one does righteous. Nobody seeks after God. That's the bad news. That's the terrible news. So when it says here, not even one, you know what that means? Not even me. Not even me. No one does good. Verse 22, however, says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned. This is back to what it says earlier. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified by his grace as a gift. How much you pay for a, a gift? What's the least amount of money uh, you can pay for a gift and it still be a gift? can't pay anything for a gift. You can't pay one cent for a gift or it's not a gift. Maybe a super deal. It's not a gift. A gift is free. And we are justified, it says, by his grace as a gift through the redemption, meaning rescue, that is in Christ Jesus, not rooted in me, not rooted in our church, not rooted in your religiosity, not rooted in your baptism, not rooted in your Bible knowledge, not rooted in your church affiliation, It's to the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Oh, I don't think we use big words in church. Yeah, we do if they're in the Bible. And the word propitiation is a Bible word. We need to rescue it. We need to teach it. Look at the context. It'll help us to see what it means. Put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Christ propitiated our sin. He paid for it. He atoned for it. He did something on our behalf that we couldn't do on our own. He's the propitiation through his blood to be received by faith. So we have grace is God's initiatory work in reaching out to us and offering us freedom from sin and rescue from our confusion and our sin. We do not receive that by dancing around under God and trying to do a lot of good stuff. We reach out in faith. We receive his free gift of eternal life. And what is it that God wants to show through all of this? This is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, meaning patience, 
he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the reason why we need grace and mercy and God's love is because we don't deserve it. As Christian churches, there is an incredible amount of pressure on people like me. More than I'm probably even aware of. A lot of pressure on me and a lot of pressure on you to preach a half gospel. Incredible amount of pressure. And the half gospel is just the good stuff. God is loving. He's gracious. You are loved. You're special. You're precious. God's merciful. He forgives you. Right? We, want, we want to get there. We just want to get there quick. Even our preaching. You listen to Christian preachers. We're sinners. Oh, but God is gracious, loving, awesome, credible, loves you. Come to, it's like all the energy is over here. Why? Because this doesn't feel good. But folks, grace and mercy and forgiveness is really not that great. It's just kind of eh. If you don't understand that how unrighteous you are, if it's not been revealed to you, we do not deserve, not a single one of us, any mercy from God. So whenever someone's like, why is God do that? sinning? Why did God give that person something he didn't give? Sinning. Why didn't God answer my prayer? Sinning. I don't think God loves me. Sinning. You're sinning every time you accuse God of anything because you deserve a grand total of zero. But God in his grace and mercy. So in our churches, we have to preach like, Lather it on. The love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. Then we need to show that love, grace, mercy, forgiveness. Like, park on it. Preach it. Put it into practice. We have to do that. But we also have to tell people, you're actually a sinner. Living with your girlfriend, that's a sin. Abandoning your marriage, that's a sin. Fornication's a sin. Viewing pornography, that's a sin. Blasphemy's a sin. Being a cheapskate is a sin. You're sinning. Pour it on. You're sinning. And then I'm going to introduce you to the Savior. Now, you already know you're sinning anyway. But the Word of God teaches it, and you need to hear it. So we don't preach morals just because we want to live in a better world, but we do. Sins have victims. Why would we not preach morals in a broken world? Why would we not say to people, be faithful in your marriage, don't molest people, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal? Why would we not? Because almost every sin has a victim somewhere. We want to protect the victims from the sinner. We want fewer abortions, fewer divorces, fewer murders, and fewer victims, but we also preach morals because we want people to know they need to be saved from their sin. The devil's preaching loud and clear, folks. His message is the dominant message in our country. He's a great preacher. He's just a false preacher. But he's doing a lot of preaching. A lot of preaching. You're all right, dude. You're fine the way you are, man. Do whatever you want. Just harness that inner power that's in you. Find enlightenment. Smoke it up. Toke it up. Sex it up. Live it up. Drink it up. Smoke it up. He's preaching a message, all couched in the subtleties of 
human rights and human freedoms and democracy. And didn't all these soldiers go to Europe 70 years ago and fight for our freedom so we could toke, smoke, and sleep with whoever we wanted? We love our freedom. He's preaching his message loud and clear. Church is like, oh, I don't know if we should say anything. We might go to jail. Really? And we need to preach the truth so that people see their need for a Savior. By the way, it's been my observation that a high percentage of Christians cannot put the gospel into words. That needs to change. Because you are the primary spokespeople that God has placed upon this world and this generation to speak truth. And so many of you know the truth. You need to familiarize yourself with it. The Bible teaches us the truth. We are abject sinners, but we can be justified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's up our game, church. Let's speak the truth. Let's tell them that's actually wrong. Talking to my neighbor. "Ah, I should probably get married. Yeah, you're right. You should get married. It's wrong what you're doing. The guy at work's using Jesus' name in vain. That's actually wrong. You realize that that's a sin. This is your creator you're talking about. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, that's wrong. Someone who's cheating and stealing, about ready to leave their spouse, that's actually wrong. That's a sin. Speak the truth. But then bear in mind passages like Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Make the most out of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace. So we're not, to, no hypocrisy allowed, no self-righteousness, no pride, no yelling, no treating people poorly, but speak the truth. Speak the truth with grace. Let's reawaken in our society a consciousness of sin so that people can accept the eternal Savior who sent his Son to die for the sins of the world. Let's do it in Jesus' name to the honor and glory of God. 